In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today. We ask that the Holy Spirit inspire us to open our minds and our hearts so that we might understand what you are trying to tell us uh, through Holy Scripture. So give us the, the peace and the comfort of knowing that you are here with us and trying to get through to our hearts what our minds sometimes reject. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Today we're going to conclude our study of Galatians, but I feel that the only way we can do that properly, and Paul seems to agree because he does a lot of review work, you might say, in chapters 5 and 6. And I think that that is kind of the way it should be. Uh, whenever you leave uh, or finish one of the books of the Bible, you should kind of review it to see what did you get out of it? How did you understand it? Or did you understand it? Uh, and obviously Paul's writings are not easy uh, to understand. As we've said before, sometimes a sentence can go on for a half a page, you know. So we've got to be careful when we look at the words uh, because the message sometimes can get lost. But let's do a little reviewing here because I feel that this particular letter of Paul is what is the most uh, understandable, you might say, document that tells us how the church began to separate itself uh, from Judaism. Uh, Paul minces no words here, and if you've gone to daily Mass, uh, the last three days has been this particular letter to the Galatians. And I hope that you've been able to understand it a little better uh, than perhaps you may have. Or in the future, when you hear Paul's letter to the Galatians, and hopefully beginning next week, Romans, you will understand a little better where Paul's coming from. Okay? There was one sentence in today's uh, reading, and this is, of course, the first reading in today's Mass, that caught my attention because it really sums up the meaning of the word justification. And this involves Paul's altercation or confrontation, you might say, with Peter. Peter was and did dedicate most of his time to trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the saving uh, means of our salvation and when he would uh, dine or when he would eat with converted Jews or uh, Gentiles he would invite both of them and eat together in accordance with their style but when a certain group of real uh, strict Orthodox Jews came around, 
then he would sort of revert back to the Jewish style of reading and uh, of eating and washing the hands and so forth. Well, Paul confronted them with this. He said, you can't straddle the fence and be on one side and then do something on the other side in accordance with who is in the audience. If you're going to be a Christian or a Catholic, then you've got to do that all the way. And I think it's a great message for us. Okay, But Paul in this reading says, and I put him on the right road, meaning I got him straightened out as to what he should be doing. But the wording, I put him on the right road, is kind of what I've been saying all along, is the essence of the word justification. Okay. Our faith, and the way faith is discussed in this letter, is something internal, a spiritual thing. It is, when we talk about faith today, Usually we're talking about, well, the Jewish faith and the Protestant faith and, you know, those kind of, That's not really faith. That's religion. Faith is what you believe, what you in your mind and your heart really believe. And then you express that through your actions, which is justification. So... Faith precedes justification because if you haven't really given your mind and your heart to God in that order, spiritually speaking, then your actions are not going to reflect it. Your actions are what reflects it and puts you on the right road to salvation. That's what justification is all about. So we got to understand that and live it. It is not just uh, sufficient for us to say, well, I'm a Catholic. If you don't express it in accordance with the teachings and the understanding of what Catholicism is all about. And that's why I have a hard time with politicians who claim to be Catholic and yet vote directly against the beliefs of the Catholic Church. You can't have it both ways. And what they're doing is simply uh, self-preservation. They might be saying Catholics because, uh, you know, that sounds pretty good and that's what the way they were probably brought up, but that doesn't mean you're Catholic. Uh, just calling you Catholic in name only is not sufficient. And who cares? Christ himself has said, just by saying, Lord, Lord, or I'm Catholic, I'm Catholic, is not going to get you into heaven. You've got to profess it through your speech and your actions. Well, that is so important for people to realize that. Name only does not count. You know, signing on the dotted line of the registration form doesn't make you a true parishioner in any church. That is only the initial part of it. Being part of the church activities and contributing to the support of the church, not only financially, but 
in service. That is what makes you a parishioner. Just going to church on Sunday is not fulfilling your obligation, and that's what a lot of people do. They just think, well, I'm going, and I can, you know, get there at the last minute, and I can leave perhaps a minute early, and but I fulfilled my obligation. The Lord says, why bother? Why bother? If you're not willing to open your mind and heart to the Lord, why bother going? You hear so many people say, well, I didn't get anything out of church, so why should I go? Did you put anything in? And I don't mean money. All right? You're supposed to give your time, your worship, your mind and your heart, even your sorrows, your problems. God knows I've had my share of problems in my life, but hopefully my faith shows that Christ has helped me through all of that. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to be a personal, have a personal relationship with you. So, just being a Catholic is not enough. Right? It's got to be mind and heart through love. And of course, you've heard all of this all along, but the whole idea of the troublemakers that came up from Jerusalem to Galatia and insisted that the new converts uh, be circumcised and go through the um, Jewish rituals and obey some of the Jewish rituals, the dietary laws and some of the, the major holidays. Uh, Paul is saying that is no longer necessary because Christ himself has now given you a new key to salvation and the old key is no longer valid. Okay, The old key is rusty and of no value. The new key is the cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the key to heaven. It even looks like a key if you would think about it. Um, and that is what Paul is trying to get across. But that is one of the stumbling blocks that has been in Christianity for centuries. Not only uh, in the first century, but down through history. The acceptance of the idea that God himself would die such a horrible death because crucifixion was the worst of the worst of death. And yet he accepted it meek and mildly because he knew that this is what the Father was expecting out of him as a representative of all mankind. But down through history, particularly in the first three or four hundred years before the Edict of Constantine in 313, and it took a while for that to be publicized and take effect, the cross was not a symbol of Christianity because people felt that it was uh, degrading of uh, their God. It was... Uh, something that was reminding them of a horrible 
uh, death and persecution of their own relatives, etc., uh, and many criminals. They used to crucify people and post these crucifixions along the main highways so people could see what was going on. And the Romans took a great deal of pleasure in doing this because it was not Romans that were up there. It was Jews and, and other nations, okay? Uh, and all of those were considered criminals, uh, at least to the Roman people and the Roman Empire, right? But Christ was really not a criminal. He was manipulated, or the whole idea of, of Christ was manipulated by the Jews to get the Romans to do this. And that is why the Jewish people uh, have been ostracized, you might say, for so long. It was not the Jewish people who caused Christ to be crucified, but they were the instruments through which he was crucified. All right? Very important distinction. Christ died for all of us. And because of the sins of all of us, not the just the Jewish people, unfortunately, because he had worked with, or God had worked with the Jewish people for 2,000 years, and they still rejected him, they then became the instrument by which he died. Okay. And they, because they had no right to do it themselves, they manipulated and got the Romans to actually crucify him. But forty years later, the Romans got back at them and destroyed their city in 70 A.D. Okay, totally another story. All right, but the cross was never accepted in the first three or four hundred years. They used the fish, the symbol of the fish as a symbol of Christianity, okay? Uh, and I suppose there may have been other kinds of indications or marks or whatever. But circumcision was the mark of Judaism, and it was like a commitment to God through Moses. Circumcision was a commitment to God through Moses. But since Christ fulfilled all of the teachings and the prophecies of the Old Testament, Paul then takes the whole idea of baptism. Now, where did Paul learn about Christ's baptism? Remember, three years before Christ's death was when he was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, okay? Well, Paul had to have learned the meaning of that in those revelations that he was given while he was in Arabia shortly after his conversion. And that is something that you have got to constantly remember. The revelations that Paul was given during that time period and he speaks about that in the second letter to the Corinthians. I believe it's chapter 12. All right. The revelations were so vital, so influencing, so personal, given to him by God himself. 
that Paul was so infused with enthusiasm and determination that everybody had to know this. And he was doing it for their spiritual good. But, you know, he did come across, I have to admit, uh, like gangbusters. And it was probably more than a lot of people wanted to accept in the beginning. If you read all of Paul's letters, and I've mentioned this before, he starts out with Thessalonians 1 and 2 and Corinthians 1 and 2 and so forth. And he is really, you know, gung-ho for promoting Christ and all of Christ's teachings, which he learned directly from God. He makes a big point in Galatians here in chapter 1 that he didn't get this from anyone else. Right? But then as his, you know, with all of us, as maturity sets in, you began to soften up a little bit because you began to realize you weren't as smart as you thought you were, you know. And maturity, of course, is a time when people begin to realize that their, ch- that their mother and father were far more smarter than you gave them credit for, okay. Uh, so, Paul begins to show uh, a sense of humility coming in. By the time he gets to Philippians, Philippians is all about humility. Even in Corinthians, when he talks about love, uh, it is more of this is what you shall do and you shall like it. But as he goes on, you can see the humility seeping in. And when he gets to the pastoral letters which he wrote when he was in prison in Rome, uh, there's a great deal of love and humility in all sense of the word. Okay. So, I, I really encourage you to read uh, all of Paul's letters over a period of time, of course. That would be great summer reading, wouldn't it now? Uh, because they are so important to the establishment of Christianity and Catholicism. They are in Paul's letters to the letter to the Romans is often called his masterpiece, and it's interesting because it was written to people he never knew. He never got to Rome uh, in his free days. Uh, he never established any churches in Rome. So the wording is a little. Like he was so fired up after writing Galatians that he couldn't stop. And he kept going on and on and on and on. And there's a lot of repetition, which we will get into, but for an entirely different reason. The letter has an entirely different atmosphere. And we'll get into that beginning next week for sure. But I want to get back to um, a word that I had used earlier. Love. Okay. I think you all have a copy. I hope you all have a copy of this, which is up here, if you don't. All right. Many people are confused when the church talks about, and and I know Father Tim is uh, one of his favorite subjects, is preaching on love. All right. But many, many Catholics, I dare say many Christians across the board, 
have a misunderstanding of what love is all about. And of course, young people today, they only got one thought in mind of what love is all about. And you'll dare say that, or I will, that that isn't what biblical love is all about. Love, in its total sense, is divided into three parts. Agape love, which is God's love unconditionally. It covers virtually all spectrum of goodwill. Then you have filial love, which is the normal love that you have for brothers and sisters. Of course, sometimes brothers and sisters, you know, they don't show love at all, but you you separate them or uh, one is missing, the other one goes and looks for it. So you do have a sense of uh, bonding of love between families or relationships. And then there's eros. Eros uh, is where we get our word erotic from, and that is sexual love. Okay, And that's all right, as long as it's true love and not just uh, playtime. But in this diagram here, true love has to come from God himself through an experience or an understanding of who God is. Without that, you are not really expressing agape love. All right? It requires a knowledge or an experience of God who then imparts his love to you. Love starts with God because God is love. And if you doubt that, go to uh, John, the Apostle John's first letter, um, chapter 4. Okay, God is love. He, and that is the essence and the very core of why he created mankind in the first place. So that he might share that love. Because love must be shared. If it is not shared, it gets bottled up and uh, dies. All right? So love, true love, must be shared. You can't say, well, I love this person or that person and then never talk to them, never do anything for them. Ah, that's not love. But once you have experienced God's love, then you must in turn share that. But what do we mean by love in a human sense? And that's what the largest circle on this page represents. And this is only some of the aspects of love. But it begins with respect. Respect for the dignity of other people. If you remember back at the beginning of the war with Iraq, and once we had sort of gotten pretty much control, there was a a series of articles. The papers just couldn't seem to get enough of the articles about the prison that was captured there and was turned around where we then 
imprisoned Afghan uh, people who we thought uh, were dangerous. And the Americans who were uh, in control of this prison got a little out of hand and began to abuse the prisoners. And I remember there was one uh, picture that was just broadcast in practically every newspaper and news journal throughout the world of uh, a female officer pulling a Afghan prisoner who was naked uh, by a dog leash. You remember that? Yeah. That, to me, was one of the grossest sins I can imagine. It is just totally, totally uh, against this whole idea of love of God and love of neighbor. All right. So, respect for the dignity of the human being. Now, there's, there's something that I want to put up here because I think it's important. People will say to me, well, I don't like this guy down the street. He is this, thus, and so, and so forth, and so on. Okay? Love has to be a decision. I've got to decide, and sometimes this is, you know, a split second momentarily. I've got to make a willful decision to love somebody through respect, through compassion, through forgiveness, integrity of yourself with that person, humility, charity, understanding, and there's other virtues that would go along that. But it's a decision. Like, which we only find in English and very few other languages, very few, there is no uh, like word for like in the Romance languages. That's an emotion. And we can all have emotions. We can't always control emotions. You don't have to necessarily like the man down the street, but you have to respect him. Okay. That is important. And that is what Paul is talking about. Not only here, but in uh, Corinthians chapter 13. Okay. So, keep this in mind. Very important. Now, that's not the end of the story. Because, if you truly feel a love for humanity, for mankind, then you have to express it. Because remember, just the feeling is something internal. It's spiritual, but it gets to the heart as well. And therefore, how do you express that? You can't go running down the streets, you know, grabbing every person and hugging and kissing them. Uh, they really, you know, send you off to the booby hatch. But you express that through discipline and discipleship. Discipleship means that you are really following the teachings of Christ and want to express that by using your talents, giving them to the church. Who is the church? 
All of us. I don't mean necessarily St. Clair Catholic Church. It can be any church. But it's expressing your love that you receive from God and have now taken it into your mind and heart. And now you want to, you can't keep it there. You've got to express it through discipleship. That's the whole meaning of love as Paul is trying to get it across. Any questions on that? Okay. Let's move on. Paul makes a big deal out of his gospel. Okay. Now, as we've mentioned before, and this is a little bit of a review, his gospel, this is what he is teaching because he received these revelations of who is Christ and the benefits of the death and resurrection of Christ. And, of course, he's chastising those people who accepted the teachings of these troublemakers that were trying to get the converts in Galatia, uh, who accepted the teachings of these converts, at least for a while, and that was considered another gospel with a small g. And Paul is condemning that. He said, let them be accursed. He's even going a little bit further in chapter 5 where he says, you know, I won't go into the details, but it wasn't too uh, pretty. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, Paul can be really blunt, uh, as I'm sure you've already found out. Uh, and he really gets down to um, basics. All right. Now, his gospel was not the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospels because they hadn't been written. His gospel was the essence of those four gospels. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that included the baptism of Christ, the Last Supper events of giving, Christ giving his body and his blood to mankind uh, through the appearance and the use of bread and wine. Remember, bread and wine was also a Jewish symbol um, and offering. And so he took the same thing that they knew, a little different format, but nevertheless, it was a, the same ingredients, and he raised this to the elevation of something holy and divine. But we, later on, after the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels came along, which was several years later, uh, and they included all of the other stories that went along with it, the word gospel seemed to have uh, morphed, you might say, into, you know, the story form. But that wasn't what the original word meant. And, of course, where do we get the word gospel from? 
It is not either Jewish, it is not Greek, and it's not Latin. It's German. Okay? Gut in German is good. Spiel is more like story uh, with a meaning, with, a, with news. Okay? So the whole idea, if you put it together, and it wouldn't help to have a couple beers, Gut uh, Spiel said a little fast, comes out gospel. That's where we got the word from. Because the word spiel. Spiel. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. That goes way back before Martin Luther. Okay. Yeah, no. That goes way back before Martin Luther. Yeah. I might not be spelling spiel right. I can't remember. My mother was German, and uh, if she were still living, I'd get it from her. But, um but the word gut is, I'm, I'm confident of that. All right. Gut spiel. Said fast enough comes out gospel. All right. That's where we get the word from. But you've got to kind of understand as Paul is writing and, and you're reading what he has written, uh, he is not talking about those four gospels. He's talking about just the essence of those four gospels that he learned in his revelations. And because those revelations came directly from God, that was what was behind his force and his insistence. Okay. And the intensity of what he has uh, been teaching. Okay. We talked about last week freedom. The idea of freedom, once you have accepted Christ and understand the meanings of his life, death, and resurrection. It is actually a freeing from the observance of all of those 613 Jewish laws. Uh, because, you know, if you go through some of those, you wonder how can the people actually grieve? Of course, now many of them have become absolute that doesn't sound right. Obsolete, sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sometimes I, I'm thinking ahead of what I'm saying, and blah, it comes out wrong. Uh, obsolete, of course. Uh, but nevertheless, the majority of them are still observed. If you have ever been to a Jewish service, particularly on Shabbat, they're uh, their holy day, their Sabbath. Okay, that's where the word Sabbath comes from, Shabbat. Uh, what are they worshiping? At a part in their ceremony, they open the doors of this tabernacle, something like ours, only it's much, much larger, and they take out the scrolls. The scrolls are of the first five books of the Old Testament, which they call the Torah or the law. We, in out of Greek or Latin, call it the Pentateuch. Okay? They do not use that word Pentateuch. It is the law in English or Torah. Okay? In uh, Hebrew. Okay? And 
that is what they're worshipping. And that's indicative of the whole idea of Judaism is worshipping the laws. The idea of worshipping a personal God who came to earth to show us the way is totally foreign to them and somewhat repulsive, particularly when we talk about the Trinity. They're thinking of three gods and in their belief there's only one God, which we totally agree with, but when they when we talk about we only believe in one God, they'll bring up, yeah, but you believe in the Trinity, and to me or to them, that's three gods. And that, of course, is, is wrong. Wrong in both. Uh, wrong, period. Okay. So, there are so many reasons why Paul is insisting that to follow Christ is freeing you up to use free will, and a true love and understanding of who God is. And in other words, he's sort of putting the thing back in your hands. I have given you, and I'm talking about as if I were God, I I have given you your life. And I have given you now an understanding of who I am through my son Jesus Christ. And what he did for you as a, as humanity. And now I leave it up to you through love because love cannot be binding. If love is binding in any way, shape, or form, then it's not love. In other words, if you do something for somebody and expect something in return because of what you did, and you don't get it, so you say, well, I'm going to just wipe that person out of my mind. That's not love in the first place. Even though you may have done it for a good reason, but you expected repayment in some way. I used to know a family who would often say, particularly, well, would often say, uh, well, look what I've done for that person. Or, Look what I've given to that person. Or so for, you know, so words of that kind. And I was thinking, hmm, that bothers me because it implies getting something in return. That's not what love is. God is saying to you, I have given you life. I have given you love. I have given you the way to heaven. And it is up to you now to take that, and because of free will, I'm not demanding anything in return. I'm saying these are the consequences if you reject it, but I'm still leaving it up to you to make your own decisions. That's what freedom is all about. I'm not putting all these laws in front of you and saying you must jump uh, hoops and so forth over these laws, There are structures, yes, that are to be kept because any organization, any belief system requires structure. But these are not the laws that we're doing. The whole idea of our Christian doctrine and dogma are not laws. They're statements of belief. And if you don't believe them, 
you are not truly a Catholic or a Christian. But we're not forcing you. These are the consequences of not following them. But that's up to you. Whereas the Jewish people have, you know, sort of bound themselves with all of these laws. Now, I'm not talking about the fact that they're not good people. They're fine. But when you get down to basics of why they do what they do, you'll see that it isn't love. Suffering. Paul talks a great deal about suffering. In fact, in one of his later uh, letters, he sort of delineates all of the sufferings that he's gone through. So many shipwrecks, so many uh, beatings, uh, so many stonings, uh, and so forth and so on. But in the end, he says, all of what I've done, was done out of my love for Christ. And the whole idea that Christ died out of love for me. And so, what I've, whatever I have suffered is nothing compared to the death that he suffered for me, meaning Paul. And that's true. God has given us the idea that if you were the only person on earth, he would still have gone through the life, death, and resurrection that he did for you. And that is so, I think, not only comforting, but stimulating as well in helping us to understand what we should do and giving us sort of guidance and direction. Now, putting all of that together, Have you got a clear understanding of what Galatians is all about? Any problem? Yes, ma'am. You said what I was going to say. You know, Christ is a king and a a priest and... and, uh, Can do do anything. So he was taking his confession and giving him... Well, not only that, but Christ being God could see that this man meant all of his sins. You know, not saying it just for the last minute thing because he was hanging on the cross. Yeah, no, he meant all of his sins. And that's true. It's got to be uh, an all-life thing. And that's true in many in many cases. Um, people often worry about what they did in the past. And you can't do that. If you think about many of our greatest sin, uh, saints were pretty, you know, wild people in their earlier days. We just celebrated the Feast of St. Francis last Saturday, I think it was. And he was, you know, a playboy, you might say. We call him that today. Uh, And did all kinds of things. We don't know exactly. But he became one of our greatest saints. Now, when God forgives... Not only in the confessional today, but whenever. When God forgives, it's everything has been forgiven, assuming the person is sincere about everything. Okay? And many, many people, I've heard from several priests who say, 
they will have people come into confession, and because they come in so often, the priest gets to know them, oh, here he is again, uh, and they'll confess the same things over and over and over. Okay? And that there's no need for that. It might be that you are having a difficult time forgiving yourself. But when, if you are sincere about all of the sins of your past, then confession covers all of those sins of the past. You needn't worry about them any longer. That's easier said than done, I know. But that's the case. And the case on the cross is the same thing. Yeah. So, forgiveness is so vitally part of our faith. Christ does not want you to be bound up in guilt. God is not a um, taskmaster who says, you've done this, thus, and so, and you're going to be held guilty forever and all of that. No. The idea of love, agape love, is unconditional. And if you are sincere, it covers all of your past, even those things that you don't want to admit even to yourself. And we've all done things like that. I tell you, sometimes I go home even from teaching, and I have to listen to my recording in order to edit it. And I thought, oh, gee, why did I say that? So, you know, I beat myself up every Thursday, you know. When I, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's terrible. But sincerity is so important. Yes, so Lisa. Yes. Where does justice and accountability? You've hit on a real good point. You know, we hear, and if you don't mind, I'll go up here. Uh, we hear so much about God is love and love and love, love, you know. It was like there is nothing else. But at least it just brought up an important point. God is also perfect justice. And if your love is not sincere or it doesn't cover everything, then God is going to hold you responsible. Let me give you an example. In the Our Father, you all say the Our Father, I'm sure daily and probably several times today. But it says, forgive us our trespasses, right? And we all like that part of it. But the second part is, as we forgive those who offend us. Now, if you put the word only in between those two parts, you get a different picture. Forgive us only as we forgive others? Is that all you want? No. But God looks at that. If a person is truly sorry, contrite, asking for forgiveness, and he's covering everything, then God will forgive. But if if he's leaving something out and saying, well, I can't forgive Joe because 40 years ago he did this, thus, and so to me. 
And I'll never forgive him for that. God's going to say, well, you did this, thus, and so. I'm not going to forgive you for that either. So, yes, perfect justice is very, very important. Now, but that is a different, sort of a different meaning of the word justice or justification. Uh, It's more of a legal term, uh, I would say a balancing term today. If we are not truly balanced in our faith, where love and sincerity are keeping things up, then Christ is not going to pay that much attention to us. So it is so important that we take all of this into our mind and our heart. Well, what Cora is really saying is taking uh, St. Paul to heart. He's talking about praying always. And some people think, well, gee, I'd have to say that rosary about 20 times a day. Uh, and then do I have time to eat and sleep? No, 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 that's not what. Paul is saying, Paul is saying exactly what Korah is saying there, that your life should be a total prayer to God. In other words, you should live your life as if God were in front of you and you were offering prayer. Uh, That might sound uh, a little far-fetched, but it isn't. Uh, As she, she just mentioned, Everything that she does, and of course with Jose, her husband, uh, is a form of prayer. And that's wonderful. That's what all of us should be looking at. And it is not as difficult as it sounds once you get into the habit of it. I'll give you a a similar example. Uh, One day I was trying to get somewhere, I don't remember where, and it's not important right now, uh, but I was saying, Lord, help me to get through this intersection uh, because I knew the lights and the traffic and so forth, you know, especially over by the Galleria. And, you know, it just seemed like all the lights were green. No, no, all right, I, he made it, you know, he, he heard me. All the lights were green and I breezed through. Okay, I thought, Oh, Lord, thank you for helping me. And then it came to me, you know, like the Lord saying, why do you have to wait for that traffic light? What about all the traffic lights? What about all the time? You know, ever since then, whenever I get through a green traffic light, I thank God for it. (laughs) And it has become... Not not a, not just an empty habit, a conscious, a conscious decision, okay, that I I do, and it's those little kinds of things that can keep you sort of on the right road to Christ. Those little incidents where you remember Christ in your life. Or God in your life. Holy Spirit as well, you know. It's those little things that can help you pattern your life 
to be on the right road. Yes, I, I live right right next to Sutter Hospital. <laughs> so I hear lots of sirens. Now, not only that, they have a helipad there, and I see and hear a lot of helicopters. But you know, I made up my mind when I moved there four years ago that I wasn't going to let that bother me. You know, that somebody's in trouble. And I just hope the Lord will take care of them. Yeah. Because that's the only time the helipad is used, which is quite often lately, particularly with the fires. Uh, they bring people from, you know, all over. And you know that the only time they use it is when people are in, in trouble. Yeah. Okay. So, it, it is those little things that can keep you on the right road and not really upset your life, but put it more in order. So, give it some thought. Any questions? Yes? Kind of observation. Uh, you mentioned the parable about the, the handmaidens waiting for the bridegroom. Yes. And uh, I have a non-Catholic friend that uh, in Nevada that had gone to Mass with a Catholic friend, and they had that reading that day, and she was really bothered <clears throat> by that reading, and she called me, and which shocked me. Uh, she said, you need to explain this reading to me, because it seems so unchristian that the bridesmaids that had the fuel didn't share with the bridesmaids that had run out. It just doesn't seem like a Christian thing to do. And so I was put on the spot to try to explain this how I agree it's a tough theological question. Yeah. Counterintuitive. Well, it, it's remember, it's a parable. It's a story. It's not history. All right? yeah. It's not a real event. What Christ is doing is telling a story about being prepared. The whole essence. That's right. That's right. Yes. And if you don't prepare, <laughs> you got that far, right? Eh? Okay. And the thing is, the ending, of course, is is really connected because if you don't prepare and you come to your end, you have to suffer the consequences. And in this case, because of Jewish culture, the doors were locked and these people couldn't come in because they didn't let the bridegroom know who they were. And I don't mean they didn't tell him their name. It means he had no relationship with them. And that is what it's talking about. Being prepared through a relationship with Christ. Yes, uh, June? Yes, it's it's the very same thing. The Jewish culture was, uh, and June is bringing up the uh, story, and again, a parable, a story, uh, where several people were invited to a wedding feast. And uh, the ones who were formally invited 
bugged out, pardon the expression, uh, one at a time, you know. Uh, and these were the Jewish people. They were the first ones to be invited to the banquet, and for one reason or another, uh, they did not. And so he goes out and brings in all of the people that he could find. And then the third time he goes out and brings in uh, the vagrants and, you know, whatever, hobos, etc., etc. But there's one person who doesn't have a wedding garment on. And everybody says, well, if he's bringing in, you know, hobos, uh, they don't have wedding clothes in their bag. Uh, the culture was at that time that all of the guests were dressed alike because they were given uh, for temporary use garments by the host, the bride and the groom, uh, to wear. But the story really centers around preparedness. Again, similar to the other story. The person that sneaks in without the wedding garment on is a person who tries to get into heaven through the back door, you might say, by not observing or by neglect of observing the proper rules. That's what the whole story is all about. Okay. So, yeah, it sounds uh, rather strong, but then again, you got to understand that in the culture of the times, all of those stories had pretty forceful endings. Uh, you know, the bride, the five bridesmaids weren't allowed back in or into the banquet hall. In your case, uh, that poor guy was thrown out, so forth and so on. Uh, those are forceful endings to make a point. Not so much the reality, because you got to remember those are stories. I think I've told you the story when I was at Israel and we were with this large group of uh, Catholic, mostly Catholic, but uh, there were other Christians and we were being guided by a local guide. And we get to this saying this particular uh, part and he says, now on this intersection is where the Good Samaritan story happened. And right over there is where the poor guy got mugged. And I said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Jesus said this was a story, a parable. And the guy, you know. Then he says, well, now, ladies, down the road. You know, you got to be a little careful. Okay? A little careful. All right. Yes, Jeff. Uh, it almost compares like Paul's trying to start a new religion. And what I mean by that, and I probably will, the, uh, he really seems to condemn the Jews. But it, it, evidently it's not just against the, the Jews in the entirety of just the following of the laws. Um, yes, uh, let me take it from there. What Chet is saying that it seems to be very strong that Paul is sort of condemning the Jews. 
he's not really condemning them, but he's trying to get them to see that they've been on the wrong path for a long, long time. You've got to remember that in the Jewish tradition of the Jewish faith, which ran for 2,000 years before, starting with Abraham, God was with them in a very personal way, bringing them uh, into, bringing, let's say, Abraham from the land of Ur into Palestine, and then, you know, his children grew up and so forth and so on, and then over a period of time, uh, Jacob, his grandson, and his whole family had to migrate down to Egypt, uh, you know, and God was with them for a reason. But along the line, these laws grew up, okay? And they were mostly intended for hygiene reasons. Uh, dietary laws were more for hygiene than for anything else. Uh, and there were other reasons, but the people that gradually took them and all made them so important that they became part of Scripture, at least to them. And the further that God brought them along, the more they would get off and do their own thing. We'll do whatever you ask, Lord, but we're going to do it our way. Okay? And that's the, that's the whole message of the uh, prophets. As we studied, you know, last year, all of the teachings of Isaiah, he kept saying, you are intended to be a model nation, to be a light to the other nations through the teachings of the Ten Commandments and living them out. But you haven't done that. You've minced those Ten Commandments, you know, 600 times, or whatever it is, 60 times. Uh, and you've bound yourself to the idea of laws. When they were in Babylon, the only thing that they had to study, really, well, in of Jewish culture, that is, was the book of Deuteronomy, which has most of these laws written in them. Deuteronomy was written in the 8th or 9th century B.C., three, four hundred, three hundred years roughly uh, before Babylon. It was not accepted. It was rejected when it was in Palestine, both north and south. But it was taken to Babylon where they finally, because they had nothing else to read, they finally began to see the wisdom of studying that. So when they came back to Israel, they were determined that they were going to follow the law and they weren't going to get into this uh, idolatry thing that they had been before. But unfortunately, idolatry could change its appearance and they started worshipping the laws and neglecting God himself. So, when Paul comes along, he's trying to get them to see that. They don't want to see it. They're following these laws to the point where they are blinded. They are imprisoned by them. And Paul is trying to get to see that by opening their mind and heart to Jesus Christ, that he is freeing them from all of that. That's his whole meaning of freedom. 
and unfortunately, uh, they still don't see it. They don't get it. Yes, yes. And we Catholics, we Christians, have to be very much aware of the same thing, that we don't isolate ourselves from other people and refuse to talk to them about uh, our faith, our religion, because that is what we're supposed to do. Evangelization is the fancy word now for it. and we are all responsible for that in some way, in accordance with our uh, setting in life. You know, nobody's telling you that you have to go uh, and get on a soapbox and start preaching on the street corner. But in your everyday life, when the opportunity comes, you are obligated to promote your Christian Catholic faith. So that you can become a light to the nations. Just as Matthew says in uh, chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. You are the salt of the earth. You are a light to the world. Meaning you as an individual have a small part to play. And each of you has a part to play in accordance with your particular life situation, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, whatever. But you have an example and must give good example to others. If you don't, there are consequences to bear. Yes, Millie? Uh, Christian brothers Protestants they always say that uh, we are saved by faith alone and not by works. And uh, at one session that I uh, went to, uh, it was, I learned that uh, like as Catholics, we have faith, but still we do good works. And we believe that our good works would help us in the restitution for whatever we have done bad. Now, uh, what I learned was that, I heard in that session, is that the reason why uh, Paul wrote that, like, faith alone, was because they were arguing about, as you mentioned before, uh, it's circumcision. It's their... Paul was referring to circumcision as works. But so it's not just by faith alone, but we also have to complement it with good works. Because usually sometimes the argument when our Protestant uh, brothers say, Why are you doing this good works? Do you believe that it would help you in your salvation? Well, I see where you're coming from. But as I've said before, faith is an internal mind and heart thing. And it can't stay there. Because if it is truly faith based on love, love of God and love of neighbor, then it's got to be expressed in some way. And how is it expressed? Through our relationships with other people. 
That's good works. Now, when Martin Luther established that rules, um, solo fide, yeah, through faith alone, he was right to a point, meaning that, yes, faith is what saves us if we express that through love. But they close their minds to the rest of that. Yeah. Faith is what saves us. That's as far as they go. And you have to, your, your interpretation or your rebuttal to that is how do you express your faith? And James tells us in his letter that faith without good works is useless. That faith has to be expressed in some way because faith is based on love. And love, as we've said before many times, cannot be bottled up. Love must be shared. And we share that love, that faith, through our good works. And if they don't want to believe that, well, you know, that's their problem. You you can't beat them over the head, you know, to get them to change their minds. And many Protestants will give you that because they think they have an argument. And the way you can just wipe that away is just say, faith is internal, mind and heart. But it must be expressed through our good works, our good relationships with others, because if it is love, love must be shared. And, you know, if they can't accept that, then there's not much you can do about it. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, excuse me. Percy's been waiting here. Yes. Uh, Paul went to Jerusalem and had a meeting with Peter. Yeah. And it was agreed that they were on the same page. Right. Now, when he started talking to the Galatians about the problems, uh, was he really talking to a Peter group or was he just talking to people who had turned away from Peter? Well, he was talking to converts. You see, he was talking to Gentiles. It was agreed that Peter would stay in Jerusalem and try to convince the Jewish people, and the people who were in Jerusalem and around it were ultra-conservative. So that was Peter's challenge. But they were still preaching the same idea about salvation. Yes, very much so. Yeah, they were on the same page, as you say. Yeah. Uh, it's just that they decided that. Um, uh, well, Peter, I mean, Paul thought he, Paul thought it was hypocritical. Uh, I mean, Paul went to different people. No, Peter was the one that. In Corinthians. In Corinthians. Peter was, yeah, Paul wrote Corinthians, but he's talking about Peter. Yeah, and it was Peter who acted one way with one group of people and another way with another group of people. And Paul challenges them on this uh, and says you can't do that. Uh, and, you know, 
That's because we're all human. We all make mistakes based a lot on many, many reasons. Uh, as long as we're put back on the right road, which is the words that Paul used in Galatians here, uh, you know, God's going to forgive us. All right. Susan? also trying to get them to hear him and listen to him. People rejected, the Jews rejected Jesus sometimes because he wasn't following their laws and their customs, healing on the Sabbath or things like that. Okay? Yeah. So or he was eating with the wrong people. So in some ways, Peter trying to follow these Jewish laws and norms was helpful in him trying to convert the Jewish people to his way of thinking because if he had acted totally different like Paul did, they would have rejected him. Yeah. They wouldn't yeah. listen to him at all. That's that's true. Yeah. Uh, Susan has a, a real point there. Uh, God never intended that there be a separate faith. Alright? It was expected that the Jewish people would accept Christ and accept all of his teachings which would have necessitated a, a Paul altogether. Well, that doesn't sound right. Well, you know what I mean. Okay. Um, sometimes, like I said, my mouth is, far, is too far behind my brain. But you're right. The whole idea of God's intention was that the Jewish people would embrace Jesus Christ and we'd all be Jewish. Amen. <laughs> That didn't happen, obviously. And so, Paul tried to convert many of his own Jewish people. And it just didn't work. First of all, he was not a Palestinian Jew. He was a Roman Jew. And that put a barrier up right there. So, he went off and said, all right, Peter, you take care of the Jewish people. I'm going to take care of the Gentiles. And that's why it worked out that way. But gradually, they had to, as uh, Percy says, they had to get on the same page. And it wasn't until this whole idea of uh, the circumcision and the troublemakers came up where they all came together and decided what was right for everybody. All right. And it was at that point in time, you might say that that was the point of the beginning of the separation. Because when Peter then writes, I mean, when Paul writes this letter, he is already convinced that he has to go a separate direction. And eventually, they all go. But it doesn't really work out in detail and in format for two or three hundred years. But once the Edict of Milan was signed by Constantine in Rome in 313 A.D., the persecution stopped, crucifixion stopped altogether, and people were allowed to express their faith openly. And then in 325, you know, only 12 years later, they had the Council of Ephesus which then began to formulate 
the doctrine and the creed. That's where we get the Nicene Creed that we say on Sundays at Sunday Mass. That was written back uh, in the midst of the Council of Ephesus in 325 A.D. Right. So it took 300 years, or almost 300 years from the time of Christ to the time of the Council of Ephesus for these people to kind of get their act together. Now, the essence of Christianity was always based on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the offering of the breaking of the bread ceremony is what they called it. Okay. Uh, the word mass did not come into uh, existence until uh, the 4th century where Jerome translated the Hebrew scriptures uh, from Aramaic to Hebrew to Greek and then into Latin. Okay. And that's where the word mass came from. Ita Messias was at the end of all of our masses in Latin. Older folks might remember that. Okay. Uh, but the word mass does not have a definite meaning. And so the church now is trying to get away from the use of that and uh, substitute or in place put the celebration of the Eucharist. Okay. Years ago, we used to separate people would say, well, I went to Mass and Communion. You'll remember that? I went to Mass and Communion? Uh-uh, no more. It's all one offering. It's all one ceremony. Right? The celebration of the Eucharist. You cannot, except for people who are in danger of death or seriously ill, who can't get out to go to Mass, can receive Holy Communion outside of the Mass. I used to go to a church where uh, the earlier Mass, for people who were working, the priest would come out and say, anybody that can't stay for Mass, I'll give them communion before Mass. No more. No more. It is all one ceremony. Any questions? Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time. We thank you for many blessings. Help us now to open our minds and hearts to absorb what we have heard, what we have learned, but most important, what you want us to hear and learn and then put into action. Because just the mind and the heart is not sufficient. Our bodies were given to us for action. And so, the difference between faith and trust is action. Help us then to open our minds and hearts to give of ourselves as you would want us to. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.